This is an ABC podcast. Two and a half years into COVID, it's still having a massive impact on our lives. Dozens of people are dying every day, while thousands more are forced into isolation, unable to work. But do we need a rethink of those rules? G'day, Dave Marchese with you for the Hack Podcast. Coming up, we're going to talk about a radical plan from a union to scrap COVID isolation and leave it up to individuals to decide whether or not they go to work. Also, a guilty verdict in one of Australia's most watched murder trials. First, though... We are living in a climate crisis that will spiral dangerously out of control unless we take rapid and dramatic action now. On Triple J. How far would you go for a cause you believe in? For something like climate change, would you risk a fight with a friend or a big showdown with your family? Would you quit your job? Because some Aussies have done this, just regular people who decided enough was enough and they were going to take a stand despite the consequences. Look, not everyone can, but maybe you've thought about it. There's something that doesn't sit right about where you are at work or what you're doing. Message in 0439757555. This story is from the host of our new climate change podcast that's launched today. You've probably been hearing about it. It's called Who's Going to Save Us? He's our very own Joe Lauder. I felt like that was more more of an opportunity to um, influence things. And I think when I started at Woodside, it, it did seem like a reasonable proposition that working for oil and gas was a great place to make change. That's Alex Hillman. He's talking about his time spent working at the Australian oil and gas company Woodside. Alex is passionate about sustainability and he studied engineering at uni. So he wanted to work somewhere where he could make a difference from the inside. And 18 months after I started, I became Woodside's carbon analyst. I think the job was called at the time. Alex ended up in that job for five years, tracking carbon emissions data. He was committed to helping Woodside make good on their promise to stick to the Paris Climate Agreement, which pledges to keep global warming well below two degrees. He also began representing Woodside at a powerful lobby group called APIA, Australia's Petroleum Producers and Exploration Association. They're the peak body for oil and gas in Australia. And it's kind of like a club, so, you know, they, they call it an industry association. They have a bunch of committees for, like, an environment and tax and climate change, but it's also used really heavily as a, as a lobbying and government engagement tool. It, it has incredible political reach. Alex went along to meetings every few months, sitting in a room with experts from energy companies across Australia. And he kept fighting for change at Woodside. But after years of trying to get them to decarbonise faster, he started to question how serious they were about it and how much of a difference he could make there. It's extremely bureaucratic. It's extremely risk-averse. It was always a little bit overwhelming and and frustrating. You know, I I, I was just one voice amongst many. There was limits to how much influence I could have. You'll also hear in the full episode of Who's Going to Save Us from Emily Townsend, whose email went viral when she quit working at the News Corp media organisation over their coverage of climate change and the Black Summer bushfires. News Corp owns the papers like The Daily Telly, The Herald Sun and The Australian. For Emily, the fires hit close to home. At one point, I actually had to leave during the middle of the day at news. I had to to leave because he he called me up and he said, my farm's probably going to burn. Sorry. Um, you know, he said to me, oh, I think my farm's going to burn down tonight. Luckily it didn't, but he had to go there and he had to fight the fires with the fireies. And, you know, it was a really scary time. 
Emily says she was concerned about the reporting of climate change at the organisation and she gave her notice but didn't give an explanation. I handed my resignation in just before I went on holidays, Christmas holidays, and uh, and the reasons behind handing the resignation in was just a, a really conflict with my values. But in the back of her mind, she was wondering, is it enough to just quit? That really played on my mind as like, Somebody needs to call this out. Like, actually, somebody needs to do something about this. Somebody needs to stand up and say, this is not okay. And I think that somebody needs to be me. When Emily got back to work after Christmas, there were reports in News Corp publications about how arsonists were behind the Black Summer bushfires. And prominent News Corp voices were disregarding the role of climate change. In one particular article, it claimed 183 arsonists had been arrested in Victoria alone. It turns out those stats were collected before the fires even started. You might remember it because it was really controversial at the time. Both police and the Rural Fire Service say arson was not responsible for the Black Summer fires. For Emily, it was a tipping point. For probably three nights, I remember like not being able to sleep at night thinking, I have to do this, I have to do this, or I'm going to regret it for the rest of my life. So she started to plan her big move. I had been thinking about the words all night long and just typed it all up in a flurry. And she sent a whole company email calling out what she says was climate misinformation. Hi, Michael. Thank you for your email regarding fundraising and other support initiatives in relation to the devastating fires. Unfortunately, however, this does not offset the impact News Corp reporting has had over the last few weeks. I have been severely impacted by the coverage of News Corp publications in relation to the fires. In particular, the misinformation campaign that has tried to divert attention away from the real issue, which is climate change, to rather focus on arson, including misrepresenting facts. I find it unconscionable to continue working for this company, knowing I am contributing to the spread of climate change denial and lies. For the record, we contacted News Corp about Emily's story and they didn't respond. But just after she sent her email, the chairman put out a statement defending their reporting and saying that while they respected Emily's right to hold her opinion, they didn't agree. Alex didn't quit in a big way like Emily, but his wake-up moment was an industry report that said there's no room for new coal and gas projects, and it hit him hard. So he left Woodside quietly, but then he made headlines later for calling them out. Former gas industry insider has hit out at the sector, claiming its its public commitments to curb emissions is at odds with its business plans. Alex Hillman worked as an advisor at Australia's largest... He now works for the advocacy group, the Australasian Centre for Corporate Responsibility. Woodside gave us this statement in response to the story. We strongly disagree with Mr Hillman's opinion. Woodside is reducing scope 1 and 2 emissions by 15% by 2025 and 30% by 2030. As part of our approach to scope 3 emissions, we've set a target to invest $5 billion US in new energy products and lower carbon services by 2030. Scope 3 emissions include the emissions from the products they sell. The Woodside spokesman also said that the International Energy Agency maintains that there is a role for gas. Woodside's LNG can help Asia to decarbonise, for example by replacing coal, supporting renewables and in hard-to-abate uses. It's important to acknowledge that not everyone can just quit their jobs. People will have bills, mortgages and families to care for, or they might need to retrain for a new industry. But even the mining industry representatives were saying in a news story last month that they're struggling to recruit younger workers because of their environmental values. 
But for Emily, she wanted to take a stand and she doesn't regret it. She thought it would create a ripple at her work, but she didn't expect it to go global. And really, Emily's not the type of person you'd expect to go viral for climate action. I would encourage more people to speak out if they, yeah, if they want to. I mean, yeah, it it needed to be done. It needed to be said. Those words needed to be said. And I'm really proud that I, I was the one to say them. Hack Triple J. Former News Corp employee Emily Townsend ending that story from Joe Lauder. And we're hearing from you on the text line, people talking about things that they've done. It's resonating. Someone says, I've seen jobs paying big bucks with mining companies. I haven't applied because of what they do and it goes against my morals. Another person, Chris in Melbourne, says, I quit my lucrative plumbing job and went to uni to study agricultural science so that I can be part of making our food systems more sustainable. Well, look, you can hear more of that story on the Who's Gonna Save Us podcast. We're so excited at Hack to finally be able to bring you this because it's been years in the making. Honestly, there's been so much that's delayed this podcast getting out there and it's changed over the years, but it's available right now on the Triple J app or wherever you get your podcasts. And the host, our very own Joe Lauder, is with us right now to talk about it. Joe, I've been seeing you on TV, radio all day talking about this amazing new pod. Time to talk to your Hack fam about it. Firstly, congratulations. Ah, oh, thank you, Dave. You too, oh, all of us. It's, it's a huge thing. I listened this morning and the podcast is so good because it's climate change, but it's not how we're used to hearing about it, right? What's different about this one? Yeah, I think right from the outset, we were pretty clear this year that we wanted to make a podcast about climate change that wasn't about the problem of climate change. So, you know, it's not really about the impacts that we're seeing because you you kind of only need to turn on the news and you see the impacts and we're kind of living with those impacts now. It's not how we got here either. We're not interested. And I think our generation is also really not interested in talking about what's gone wrong up until this, up until this point. It's kind of focusing on what's next. And that's there's been a great response to it. It's really encouraging. And so I think that that that's really resonated really well. But that was kind of from the outset that we just wanted to make something about what's next. And also it's about climate change, but it's also not directly about climate change. Yeah. And that's the thing. You're hearing people's stories and some of them are really personal. And when we talk about climate change generally, it's you hear it in the news or maybe you hear it on Hack and people will often say, oh, I wish there was a, a bigger explanation or we had more time to dig into that. This is the opportunity to get into those bigger stories and get by behind the headlines. And when we talk about the news that comes out, it's usually doom and gloom all the time. But I'm wondering, do you think, Joe, talking to younger people, making this podcast, getting out there like you do talking about climate, do you think younger people think a lot differently about climate change? Like they're more pragmatic. It's less emotion about is this happening or is it's not happening? It's just acceptance and how are we going to deal with it? Yeah, I think so. I think our generation is less caught up in the culture wars of it, really. Like I think, and re-prosecuting, like I said, those older arguments about, you know, who said what, what party did what in the past. And I think, um, yeah, there's that real pragmatism of what's next and what are we going to, what are we going to be doing about this? And some of the solutions, and one thing that's actually, I found really um, inspiring about working on this podcast is we have we don't have all the solutions, but actually, if you speak to uh, climate experts, we have a lot of the solutions already, and th- that's actually really encouraging. And I think that's the thing that our I think younger generations sometimes we can also feel really disempowered as well by this 
because it is our future that we're talking about, but it doesn't mean that we have the power necessarily to change it. So we kind of wanted to flip that on its head a little bit as well. We've got some more messages coming through, people who are so into this new podcast. It's called Who's Going to Save Us? It's available now. Go listen to it. It's so good. Somebody says, can completely relate to Alex. I took a job with one of the big energy retailers during COVID, rosy-eyed, believing I could play a part in helping them decarbonise. The topic was barely even talked about while I was there, so I quit and told them why. Another person says, I studied environmental engineering. I'm now a consultant and mining companies are my clients. Making change from the inside works. Also, awesome. I'm, I'm sorry, but all, uh, all of us need and use metal. We'll need so many metals to go green. Mining is not the devil. That was from Andrew. So look, lots of different opinions coming through on this. The first two eps are out now, Joe. The first one, as we heard, deals with stories of people who are taking a stand at work. What's the second ep about? Yeah, the second episode is about scientists and climate scientists who've been really frustrated by a lack of climate action and have felt for a long time that they're kind of upholding their side of the bargain. They're doing all the research, they're coming up with the modelling and the predictions and they're seeing those predictions play out, but yet their advice isn't being taken and they're saying that we need to take stronger action. And so some of these scientists are so frustrated that they're they're turning to other means really to try and get their message across, including some of them getting involved in some pretty radical protests. Like we speak to this guy, Dr. Peter Kalmus, who's a NASA. He started out in NASA as an astrophysicist searching for gravitational waves, which is like the coolest job in science. Realised he actually wanted to work in the climate space. And now he still works for NASA, working in the climate space. He got arrested earlier this year for locking himself onto a bank in downtown LA. So, yeah, and he kind of talks about the fact that, you know, he... He started like community climate organisations. He started an app. He had a company. He wrote a book. He was doing so much and he still felt like that people weren't listening enough to the scientists. So it's getting radical. And yeah. it's really interesting hearing hearing the way that they've kind of dealt with that conflict as well and the conflict around their work. Oh, totally. And you can imagine these experts watching it all play out in the media over all these years. It must have been crazy. Them thinking, what, what's this? This is not what what's actually in reality what's happening. The title, Who's Going to Save Us? Is this a rhetorical question or is there a legit answer at the end? Are you like, oh, Shaquille O'Neal's going to save us or something <laughs> at the end? <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, that isn't the conclusion that we come to. <laughs> uh, do you know what? We ask all the guests who come on who's going to save us and the most common answer is it's very warm and fuzzy, but everybody is like all of us. Yeah. Really, it's kind of, um, it's not to put it all on individual action, but really there's there's a lot of people that can come together to make this happen. So that's, I've been giving their answer, everybody. Hey, it's up to <laughs> all of us, but this is a really, really good listen and you're going to love it. I, I guarantee it. I don't give out recommendations and I'm not just saying it because we've <laughs> made it. Um, but Joe Lauder, the perfect person to bring you these stories because she's across all this and has covered climate environment for so many years for us here at Hack, the perfect host. Go check it out. Who's going to save us on the Triple J app or wherever you get your podcast? Joe Lauder, thanks so much. Thanks, Dave. Hack. First, it was 14 days, then 10, now it's seven, and soon it could be five. On Triple J. You know how it works. The two little lines on a rapid test, then you're out for a week. Forced isolation, no work, no play. Remember when it was two weeks, everyone coming back from overseas were forced into quarantine, into hotels. Well, what about if there was no isolation period? After more than two years of the pandemic, that'll seem wild for a lot of you, but the Health Services Union, which represents a lot of health workers, 
is saying it's time to scrap isolation because workers are struggling with the current arrangement, especially casuals. We already know some politicians like the New South Wales Premier want the isolation period to be cut from a week down to five days. That's going to be talked about at a big national cabinet meeting tomorrow. But I'm wondering what kind of an impact would these changes have on our COVID situation in Australia? With us now is Professor Nigel McMillan from Griffith University. Hey, Nigel, thanks for coming on Hack. No problem, Dave. Scrapping COVID isolation rules, is that an infectious diseases expert's worst nightmare? Oh, it really is. I have a, I have a rule for my own people. No heroes at work, please. Yeah. And that includes for any illness. So whether it's influenza or whatever, you know, please stay home, get better and don't spread it around because it affects all the productivity of the entire team. And we'll see this on an Australian-wide scale if we don't have any of that. So, yeah, that's a terribly bad idea. Wouldn't support that. Right. So we've seen, we have seen the rule change over time. Like in the beginning, as I said, people were locked away for two weeks. It was cut to seven days. Is it inevitable that we're going to see that cut down even more? Because I saw some research that um, COVID variants, the newer ones, have much smaller incubation periods, for instance. So does that change things? Yeah, that's true. So Omicron sort of seems to kick in a bit quicker than, say, Delta or Alpha did, about three days versus five. So we kind of detect it a bit quicker. It's a bit quicker at getting off the ground. Look, I think in a very pragmatic way, this is really a debate about what we do with, you know, trying to keep our our hospitals working uh, versus keeping our economy working. And so we can cut cases, you know, as the health union might want or the, uh, the workers union might want down to zero and we're everyone would go to work, but we'd then start filling up our hospital beds again and people would be sick and home anyway. Uh, we've got seven days right now and we know that about 25% of people are still infectious after seven days. Um, and so that will contribute to some cases. We had 14 at the beginning because that's actually, that covers about 95% of cases. But remember there were people who went through 14 days isolation and still came out and got positive when that was all over the media and that was in a time where we were trying to eliminate the virus, and we did that quite well. We're in now in a situation where the virus is running rampant all over the place, and our caseload though now is coming down to a nice level where our hospital systems aren't really under pressure. And so a change from five to um, seven to five means we would have more cases, that's no doubt, but our hospital system isn't under pressure. So from a pragmatic point of view, it's probably something that will happen. We will get more cases, um, but really it's not going to take the hospital system with it. We've got some thoughts coming through on the text line. Someone says, if workers are struggling, the answer is to pay everyone a living wage, not to scrap health safety measures. I'm wondering, the boss of the health services union says the rules need to change because it's impacting people's lives. You know, for instance, if they're casuals, they may not be able to work and as a result, people aren't testing because they don't want to know. They don't want to know if they're positive and be forced into isolation. Have we seen big changes in the numbers of people testing? Because we know that a lot of people are using rapids now, but have we seen a big drop off? We certainly have. And in fact, some really nice data came out today <clears throat> looking at seroprevalence from the Kirby Institute. Basically, they predict that around a quarter of our populations had COVID in the last three months. A so quarter, that's about, wow. you know, yeah, so that's about 6.8 million people, but we only had 2.7 million infections reported. So for every infection, there's probably two or three people who aren't reporting it right now, and that's just hard data. We know it. So that's four or five million infections they report 
that uh, we don't know about. And we certainly know people aren't doing tests. They're just carrying on. And, um, you know, that's why we're seeing our cases. But look, we it's coming down. We're, we're really over a peak now. We're coming into summer and that's going to be less transmission. And we have quite a high level of infection in the community such that it's very difficult for the virus to, to move on from one person to the other. So if you're going to change it, now's the time. Right. I was going to ask, are things expected to get a lot better after the winter months are done? Yeah, this is a winter virus like flu, like RSV. And so uh, the Northern Hemisphere is going to go into a hard time in the, in the coming months when they go into winter and we're going to improve more sunlight, you know, more getting outdoors and we'll see a lot less virus infection until our next variant, I guess. And, well, Delta came along and 12 months later we got Omicron and that's about November. So, you know, if it was going to stay regular, we might expect a new variant sometime in November. Oh, Professor Nigel McMillan, that's not what we want to hear. Not heading up to summer, we don't need <laughs> another variant. But, you know, it's evolving, this virus, and we're still learning more and more about it every week and month that goes on. Uh, Professor Nigel McMillan from Griffith Uni, thank you so much for joining us on Hack and filling us in. Thanks, Dave, any time. And someone on the text line says, the problem isn't isolation, it's the loss of income, which is a result of the increased casualisation of the workforce. Somebody else says, more than half of Australia's COVID deaths have happened this year. It's straight up irresponsible to remove safety measures. Hack, Christopher Michael Dawson on the charge that on or about 8 January 1982 at Bayview, I find you guilty. On Triple J. Hey, are you into true crime podcasts? Because if you are, you probably listen to the Teacher's Pet podcast. At one stage, it was one of the most popular podcasts in the world, more than 30 million streams. It was about the disappearance of Sydney woman Lynette Dawson in the 1980s, and it led to a new investigation into her husband, Chris Dawson, a former school teacher, who was eventually charged with her murder. But this was a really wild story because at the time, Chris Dawson was also in a relationship with one of his students, a teenage babysitter, and Lynette's body has never been found. Chris Dawson always claimed he's innocent. Today, he was found guilty of murdering his first wife. The case is solved and the story is making headlines around the world. Let's find out a bit more about what happened in court today. The ABC... News court reporter Jamie McKinnell is with us. G'day, Jamie. Thanks for coming on Hack. Hello, Dave. Firstly, can you give us a quick rehash of what happened in this case? You've covered this case right through in this trial. For people who might not be familiar, what's the story? Yeah, so Chris Dawson faced a judge-alone trial in the New South Wales Supreme Court and what he was accused of doing was murdering his wife uh, and the Crown said his motivation was his want or his desire to have what they called an unfettered relationship with their teenage babysitter at the time who was known in court as JC. Now, Chris, Dawson, Chris Dawson's uh, lawyers put up an alternative theory about why Lynette Dawson might have disappeared. Now, they suggested that uh, she must have realised her trust was terribly broken by this so-called affair or relationship with this underage girl. And uh, they also suggested that uh, she might have made this terrible decision to up and leave the family and abandoned not only their uh, her husband, but also her two children. So that was really how it played out before a judge alone in the Supreme Court over about two months. Yeah, big, big story, big trial. There was a lot of interesting evidence that was being heard 
heard too. Like every day there was something new that was being reported. What was some of the more interesting stuff that you heard in court? So I think the most the most contentious thing that came out during this trial, and it also came out during the course of the podcast, was this allegation that Chris Dawson once contemplated hiring a hitman to get rid of Lynette Dawson. Now this came from JC when uh, she went on to marry Chris Dawson after Lynette Dawson disappeared and, and they had a child. And it, it was put to Chris Dawson in a 1991 police interview. The court was played a video of that interview and that's where he was first confronted with this allegation from JC that uh, she was claiming that he once talked to her about this idea of getting a hitman but then backing out because he was worried that other people might get hurt. Now, today, the judge, Justice Ian Harrison, has uh, said that he can't be satisfied that that's a conversation that ever took place. So it is something that sort of got rejected in the scheme of things. But the other interesting part of this judgment was that overall, he said JC was a pretty reliable and honest witness. And she wasn't uh, sort of contaminated by the ill feelings that might have come about from her separation and divorce from Chris Dawson. Really interesting. When the judge started delivering this verdict this morning, I thought, oh, it should be over soon because sometimes they happen really quickly, right? But this dragged, like it was going for hours this afternoon and the judge was taking his time explaining the verdict, wasn't he? Yeah, and the reason why I think it took so long is because this is such a circumstantial case. So there was very little sort of forensic or DNA or hard evidence to, to sort of accept or reject. He was really going off what, you know, other people's impressions were of what their marriage was like at the time or what Lynette Dawson seemed like. But he was going through and making uh, sort of fact-finding results, basically, of all these separate questions. For example, one of the things was that Lynette Dawson was claimed to have been seen after she disappeared. Chris Dawson's lawyers were making making that part of their defence is that she was apparently seen by five different witnesses. And the judge kind of went through each of those alleged sightings and sort of dismissed each of them as being, uh, you know, extremely frail in terms of the evidence that presented or wholly unreliable or false or a fabrication. So there were a lot of smaller questions that he had to answer as part of the big question uh, overall about whether Chris Dawson was guilty or not guilty. And was there other big stuff that he mentioned in this as well, the judge? Yeah, so the main theory I think that he was uh, making a decision about was this alternative explanation that she must have decided to leave her family. And the judge said that there was a compelling body of evidence to support a rejection of that as a theory. He said that that as a sort of hypothesis didn't really rise above being just speculation or conjecture. And he said the evidence uh, was that Lynette Dawson was someone who had a very loving relationship with her family and especially with her children. And he said it was, you know, not something that he could accept. It was extremely unlikely in his point of view that she would make this unexpected decision to get up and leave her family. And that was a big question in this trial is, you know, the question of would a person and particularly a mother make that extreme decision to walk out on their family? Yeah, a lot of ifs and just a fascinating trial altogether. What was the reaction in court when the guilty verdict came down? Like what Was Chris Dawson there? What did he do? Yeah, so he he was sitting in court. He was watching really intently, watching every word that Justice Harrison was saying, basically. And there were a lot of words in these five hours. Yeah. Uh, he didn't make a lot of sort of reactions that we could see. He had a face mask on because of, of COVID safety protocols and all, all that kind of thing. But when he found out this news that he's been found guilty, he was a bit stony faced. And then he was uh, taken away in handcuffs, basically, by uh, court officers or corrections officers. And he he went willing, willingly with them and now he is in custody. 
And so what happens? Can he appeal? Is that expected? Yeah, so his lawyer, Greg Walsh, spoke outside court and he actually flagged this as a possibility already. He said, I can confirm that it's a probable course of action uh, that there will be an appeal against this conviction. He said Mr Dawson has always asserted and he still does assert his absolute innocence of the crime of which he's been convicted. And Greg Walsh said he will continue to assert that innocence. So at the moment, we're in this situation where Uh, Chris Dawson is in custody waiting for a sentence date, which we're not sure when it's going to be. He might make an application for bail pending an appeal if an appeal is launched. But these are all questions that are sort of up in the air right now. And I mean, it has been a huge international story because the podcast was big all over the world. Have you seen that interest day to day in court? Like, was it packed today? I did see some pictures from outside the courthouse and it looked like everybody in the media was there. Yeah, it was an enormous media pack outside court. And I think what really propelled that is not just the trial and the fact that this is sort of the the big uh, day of the judgment, but also the podcast really propelled that. And the fact that when Chris Dawson was arrested, there were court orders essentially ordering that to be taken off the internet and this whole thing of, you know, when when you're not allowed to listen to something, you want to listen to it more. So that kind of propelled the uh, popularity and publicity even more. Yeah, um, definitely, definitely big case that you've been covering. I don't know how you're feeling now that this part of it is <laughs> over, probably a little bit of relief, but um, yeah, certainly a lot of people were tuned in for that verdict and will be wanting to find out more. I'm guessing there's a big write-up on the ABC News website if people do want to get more. Yeah, we were actually live-blogging it as well. One of my colleagues uh, was watching a live stream and he's put together an amazing feed of different posts. So if you want to have sort of an update of how it happened blow by blow, you can go on the ABC website. There's also a massive comprehensive write-up from me, but also the live blog is a great way to go back through it. Beautiful. Well, it's all there. ABC News Court reporter Jamie McKinnell, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. And make sure you also go check out our new podcast, Who's Going to Save Us? It's up on all the platforms. Hack on Triple J. Big thanks again to ABC Court reporter Jamie McKinnell. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack Podcast for now. I'll catch you next time.